If you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 3. We'll be looking at the end of, well, almost the end of Titus chapter 3. Our primary text today is going to be verses 8 through 11. Titus 3, 8 through 11. We live in a world today where everyone has an opinion about how churches are to function and what role they're to play in society. Even people would claim, who would claim no religious affiliation often have strong opinions about how churches should organize or what influence they should have in the world. There's even more opinions about how church leaders should lead those churches. And even within Christian circles, there are great misconceptions about what church leaders should prioritize. Are churches to be engines of social change? Should their primary function be to back political policies or pundits in order to bring about uh, desired social ends? Or should churches prioritizing, should prioritize a retreating from the world, perhaps? There are so many voices trying to tell us what to prioritize in Christian leaderships. Just this week on my Facebook feed, as I got on Facebook, I saw dozens of articles and sermons telling me all about the things that we're supposed to be doing or saying or prioritizing as a church. And many of them are really good things. If they weren't, I wouldn't follow them on Facebook. And there is a place for those things. But in a day when we have so much information coming at us at such a rapid speed, trying to think through church leadership can become very overwhelming and even discouraging. You begin to wonder, am I missing something of vital importance? You begin to doubt your own abilities, your own reasoning. You begin to try to live up to the expectations of someone else, maybe within your own church or the expectations of those famous pastors and theologians. After all, if they say, I need to be doing something, then certainly I need to be doing it, right? This is where the book, where a book like Titus becomes so helpful. Sometimes what we need to do is just step back and remind ourselves what Scripture tells us to prioritize. The Word of God has this ability to cut through all the details and all the noise and remind us of what should be of primary importance in the life of the church. Now, I'm not saying we need to ignore what others are saying or doing around us. I'm not saying there's something wrong with learning from others or reading articles or reading books and trying to implement new things. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But it's so easy to try to live up to other people's expectations while failing to prioritize what Scripture explicitly tells us to prioritize over and over and over. This isn't just something for church leaders to think about. Any Christian who is part of a church can fall prey to comparing their church with another. In today's passage, Paul gives Timothy three directives for pastoral ministry, three priorities Now, of course, these aren't the only three priorities for church leaders. This is not an exhaustive list. But if we can keep these three things primary, then many other details and secondary issues will make more sense and they'll fall into place properly. 
Just like what Christ says, if we seek God first, all, everything else will be added unto us. Paul tells Titus to insist on something, to avoid something, and to protect something. To insist on something, to avoid something, and to protect something. Those are, that's what we're going to look at. And my hope today is that after we see these three priorities, we will understand that God's desire for His church is gospel-centered unity displayed in good works. God's desire for His church is gospel-centered unity displayed by good works. And before we jump into our passage for today, it's important once again that we see how this passage fits within the entire context of the letter of Titus. It's a short letter, so it doesn't take that long for us to review just to catch up and make sure we understand the context. We don't have to do this every week, but it's good to do it every now and then. So, let's very quickly turn back to Titus 1.1. We read these words, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle for Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which, which accords with godliness. So, there's a truth that we are to believe, and there's a godliness that we are to live. Our truth is to accord with our godliness. Our doctrine is to match our life, and vice versa. Our life is to match our doctrine. Paul then starts off by telling Titus to appoint leaders in the church to steer the ship and gives very specific things to look for in those leaders. He then tells Titus to be aware, uh, to be aware of certain wolves who might make their way into the church. And then look at chapter 1, verse 16. These wolves profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Their life does not match their doctrine. So again, Paul is aiming here at this hypocrisy, this inconsistent living. In chapter 2, he starts off by saying, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So, you have sound doctrine. Now, teach the people how to live lives that accord with that sound doctrine. He talks about five categories of people and gives examples of how they can live holy lives. Older men, younger men, older women, older, younger women, and bondservants. In verse 14 of chapter 2, we see that Christ came to redeem us from lawlessness, to purify people who are zealous for good works. So again, the emphasis is that our lives, these good works, should display the work that Christ has done in our hearts. We have life and doctrine. They must be consistent. Then in chapter 3, we've seen these same things emphasized again. Paul gives his clearest gospel explanation in verses 1 through 7. So Kyle preached on last week. Today we're going to see again how that gospel is to lead us to good works. So if someone in the future were to ask you, just out of the blue maybe, hey, what's the book of Titus about? You ever read the book of Titus? What's it about? It would be entirely appropriate to say something like this. Well, Paul's letter to Titus is written to a church elder to give instruction about how to encourage his church to live lives consistent with the gospel. That's a, that's a faithful summary of the book of Titus. Gospel consistency is something that should mark the faith of every believer. So, with that in mind, let's begin reading in chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read this whole section here, 1 through 11. Remind them 
to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, And then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Paul tells Titus, first, to insist on these things. Insist on consistency. I was going to make my first point, insistency on consistency. But I don't know if insistency is actually a word or not. I wish it was. It might be, but... uh, because I just like the wordplay, but insist on consistency is sufficient. This word insist means to speak confidently about these things, to speak boldly about these things. We need to know what these things are, right? What's he referring to? These things. There's been a lot said so far. Well, he's referring to the gospel message that he has just presented in verses 4 through 7. So, let's reread verses 4 through 7. This is what these things are, okay? Verses 4 through 7. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's these things. So here are the truths Paul wants Titus to confidently proclaim, verses 4 through 7. The goodness and loving kindness of God has appeared. We have been saved. Our salvation has come to us not because of our own works. Our salvation has come to us by the mercy of God. To be saved means that we are regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Our dead hearts are made alive. The Holy Spirit has now been poured out onto us, and those who are justified by the grace of Christ are now heirs of eternal life. You will notice that these truths, these things are the essence of the gospel message. God's free, saving grace has come to us. It becomes ours, not because of our own works, but because of His own free mercy. 
That word in verse 7, justified, tells us how powerful this grace is. God's grace doesn't just overlook our sin, right? It doesn't just overlook it and say it doesn't matter, but it's His grace that brings about, actually creates our justification. You see, justification is what every person longs for. We all know we are sinners. Our consciences condemn us because we all know that God exists and that we have sinned against Him. We all know we are guilty in God's court. We all know we are deserving of His wrath. And when we think about that, like Martin Luther did, it terrifies us. So we suppress it over and over until our consciences are seared and it no longer affects us. But every human being is looking for a way to be justified or to be made right with God. This is one of our greatest needs, our greatest desires as all human beings. And in every other religious system, salvation comes about by some kind of human effort. Maybe salvation comes about by self-denial. If you deny yourself enough, you'll get to some mystical point where you, are, you become one with whatever being or whatever presence is out there. Or maybe, be, maybe it comes about by excelling into higher levels of consciousness. Or maybe it's simply by doing good works so that your good works maybe when you die will outweigh your bad works. And you just kind of, I just know I'm a good person. I'm just trying to be a good person so that when that time comes, the Lord will say, Man, you're just, you're just good, right? Come on in. Come on. But the Christian message, the message of Christianity proclaims something very different, something distinct from that. Our salvation comes not because of works done by us in righteousness, but by the unmerited mercy of God. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, he actually bore the punishment that was due to his people. And because of that, those who have faith in him are united with him and his righteous life becomes ours. Because of that, we are then justified in God's court of law, not because of anything we have done, but because Christ paid the penalty for us. There's nothing we can do to earn this saving grace, and there's only one requirement for it. It's faith. Faith in itself is a gift from God. So right here in Titus 3, we have the central Christian teaching of justification by faith. Those are the things Titus is to insist upon. These things cannot be compromised. Those truths are essential to the Christian faith. They are what separate Christianity from every other religion. If you've been reading the Unquenchable Flame book about the Reformation leading up to our Reformation celebration at the end of the month, you've read that this doctrine of justification by faith became the central dividing doctrine between the Catholic Church and the Reformers. There were many doctrines that that divided them, but this became central. Martin Luther wrote that 
if this article of justification stands, then the church stands. But if this article collapses, the church collapses. Paul tells Titus, insist on these things. Insist. But what is the purpose for insisting on these things? Paul gives us the answer. It's so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That's the consistency. Insist on consistency. Don't just insist on right doctrine. Insist on right doctrine that accords with good works. Insist on consistency. So take note how these good works play out in the Christian life, okay? Verse 5 tells us we are not saved by our works, okay? We're not saved by our works. That's verse 5. Verse 7 tells us we are justified by grace. Again, it's the work of God, not good works. Verse 8 tells us that after our justification, as heirs of eternal life, We are to devote ourselves to good works. So good works are the fruit of our salvation, not the root of our salvation. It's as clear as day. We are not saved by our good works, but by the mercy and grace of God. But once we are saved, we are to devote ourselves to good works. Church, this is something that we must constantly be reminded of. Some of you might be sitting there saying, I get it, Caleb, I get it. We hear this a lot, right? I get it. This is kind of basic Christianity. Well, this is something we are so prone to forget. Even after coming to Christ, we are prone to believe that God's acceptance of us is due to how good of a person we are. This causes us to be unnecessarily discouraged or fearful when we fall into sin. We start to think that God's love for us in those moments has lessened or that He will turn His back on us or that we have to do something. Well, I've sinned, maybe grievously sinned. I guess I need to start reading my Bible more. If I start doing that, then maybe we start feeling better about ourselves. Church, this is dangerous. It's dangerous thinking. It's not dangerous to think you need to read your Bible more. (laughs) That's probably a good thing to think. But to think, I need to read my Bible more because I feel like God is disappointed in me and this will somehow get me back into His good graces. Church, we have to fight against this thinking. Or maybe the flip side. Maybe we begin to really believe that God owes us good things because of the good things that we've done. This is a more subtle version of the prosperity gospel. Maybe we get angry with our circumstances and we start to think, well, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve what's going on around me. Just look at the things I've done for God. I deserve something better from Him, better circumstances. I've thought that. Church, we must always be reminded that God's love for us and our salvation comes to us by grace alone. No work of yours earned it. God did not look at something you did or at your holy character and decide that because of those things, you would be saved. No, we have no righteousness of our own. 
Nothing we can do will ever place God in a position of indebtedness. This is huge for us. We have to understand this, that no work of ours will require God to give us any good thing. That is impossible. That's not even theoretically possible within the realm of the entire universe. Nothing you can do can force God's hand. He can never owe us anything. And this is really good news. This is good news for us. We want it this way. But notice the phrase, that they may be careful to devote themselves to good works. This idea of being careful means that we are to put concentrated thought and intentionality into our good works. We are to think strategically about them. You know, sometimes when I think about doing good works, I just assume that, okay, I know I'm supposed to do good works. I go throughout my day, and God's going to give me just spontaneous opportunities to do good works. And that is absolutely true. That's a, that's a great way to think about doing good works because that's going to happen. As you go throughout your day, you're going to have opportunities to encourage people, to say an encouraging word, to bless others. All of that is true. But this passage seems to be indicating something more intentional. We are to be careful to devote ourselves to good works. Now, what am I referring to here? Just very briefly, we're going to skip down to verse 14. I know I'm skipping ahead to next week's sermon. Sorry, Travis. Uh, I'm not trying to steal your thunder. Um, I have no idea what he's going to preach on next week other than this passage. Um, but here, I think it's, it's going to give us some clarity on what Paul has in mind when he talks about good works. Let's read verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. In Paul's mind, engaging in good works means that we look for and identify cases of urgent need. That's not all, right? But that's what's mentioned here, and I think it helps give some clarity. We devote ourselves to meeting those urgent needs. So people ask, well, is that in the church? Is that out of the church? Yes. Both. Let's do both. This takes thought. This takes more effort, probably more sacrifice. I think Paul has in mind things like the relief of the poor, caring for orphans and widows, visiting those who are sick or in prison for their faith. But those are just some thoughts. Let's think carefully. How can we devote ourselves to good works? Not just getting up every day and saying, God's got good works for me to do. Let's go out and do it. That's great. Let's do that. But let's think long-term, strategically. How can I structure my life? What job can I get? What can we do as a family over the course of time to meet these urgent needs that we see? Are we even looking for urgent needs? So we see we're, we are to carefully devote ourselves to good works because this is consistent with our identity as children of God. We are heirs of eternal life. Therefore, 
devote ourselves to good works. Insist on this consistency. We're told then in in verse 8 that these things are excellent and profitable for people. The church devoting itself to good works results in tremendous benefits and blessings for everyone. When God's people live lives of self-sacrifice, carefully looking for ways to serve and bless others, then first of all, the gospel is put on display and God is glorified. But second, this results in very physical tangible blessings as well. When the church devotes itself to good works, people are blessed. It's excellent and profitable. I just want to say that I see this kind of thing in our church all the time. I've never been a part of a church where the gospel is lived out in such practical ways as I see at Redeemer. It is a huge encouragement to me. I'm always encouraged that when a need is made known in our church, how many people come forward to actively meet that need. Many times it's just done without, without questioning, without even coming to the elders. It's just, it's just taken care of. I've been the recipient of those blessings many times in the past. So don't think that I'm preaching on this because I see it as a deficiency in our church. I don't. I simply want to encourage us, man, continue putting the gospel on display in your good works. I'm trying to do what Paul is encouraging Titus to do, to insist on consistency. Let's be people whose works are consistent with the gospel. (coughs) Sorry. But not only is Titus to encourage people to devote themselves to good works, He is also to avoid foolish controversies. My second point. So he's to insist on something. He's to avoid something. Avoid foolish controversies. After Paul tells Titus what to insist upon, tells him what to avoid. He is to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Now, it's hard for us to understand maybe what Paul's referring to because we're 2,000 years removed from some of these controversies. But what about genealogies? After all, aren't there lots of genealogies in the Bible? The Old Testament has many genealogies. In the New Testament, in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, we have genealogies leading down to the birth of Christ. So what does Paul mean here? Well, it's helpful to look at other passages where this is mentioned. In 1 Timothy 1.4, Paul urges the church not to devote themselves to endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So it seems that it was common for the Jews of Paul's day to argue endlessly over genealogies. Maybe they were arguing over the genealogy of Christ Himself. What does it mean? Why are there some generations that seem to be missing? Maybe they were arguing over Old Testament genealogies or perhaps their own genealogies in order to exalt their own spiritual heritage or ancestry. We don't really know, but we do know that this becomes a problem when they begin to neglect the things that God has clearly revealed for them to do. They start to major on the minor things and minimize the major things. Paul also mentions quarrels about the law. 
This can mean all kinds of things. We don't know for sure what these quarrels consisted of, but it's safe to say they were certainly foolish controversies and only served to detract people from the most important priorities. And then there's dissensions. We can imagine, of course, that this kind of controversy, these kinds of foolish controversies would lead to what Paul calls dissensions. People begin to form factions in the church based on who they agree with. And eventually people grow angry, bitter toward one another, and division ensues. These things, he says, are profitable, are, are unprofitable and worthless. Unprofitable and worthless. They produce the opposite of what the gospel produces. Remember, when the gospel rules our lives, what results are good works that bless and benefit everyone. But when foolish controversies ensue, what results is destruction and division. People are not blessed. Hardship and suffering is only increased. Things like the relief of the poor and the caring for orphans and widows, these go by the wayside when foolish controversies take priority. Those who are most vulnerable are left to fend for themselves as God's people bite and devour one another. This is exactly what happens in our day as well. When the gospel loses its central place in the lives of believers, we can easily begin to, foc- to lose focus on the most important things and start to elevate other things above what really matters. We get caught up in nitpicking the details of something until eventually being right becomes more important than being faithful. Church, we must guard against this as well. Like I was saying earlier, we are bombarded with information about all kinds of controversies in our day that other people tell us that we must have a position on. Other people try to force quarrels upon the church and demand that we pick a side, usually whatever side they're on. Let me be clear, I'm not saying there are not right and wrong answers. I'm not saying that we should not seek truth and answers. There are many times when we need to do our research and think about controversies from a Christian worldview. I'm all for that. We do that here. We help one another do that. But we must not get caught up in foolish controversies that lead to quarrels and dissensions. We must approach any controversy with humility and love. We have to always seek to understand someone else's position, put ourselves in their shoes. It doesn't mean we have to agree with them, but when the gospel remains central in the midst of controversy, we will seek understanding and unity and love and faithfulness to God's Word all at the same time. We will not elevate a man-centered idea of love over faithfulness to the Word of God. And we will not elevate a harsh, strict adherence to Scripture above treating people with respect and dignity. Church, it really is possible to do this in the midst of controversy. It really is. The Holy Spirit is able to help us walk in controversy together, seeking the good of one another 
even when we disagree. Let's be people, even in the midst of controversy, who seek faithfulness to the Word of God and love for one another. So far, we've seen two of the three priorities for church leaders. Insist on consistency. Two, avoid foolish controversies. And now, our third and final priority is to protect the unity of the church. Protect the unity of the church. Now, this follows naturally from our second point. Paul's already mentioned quarrels and dissensions, right? He calls them unprofitable and worthless. Here he lays out simple, practical instructions on how to deal with those who are causing divisions in the church. Look at verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Let's start with the second half of this verse. What's the nature of the person stirring up division in the church? We're told that he is warped, sinful, and self-condemned. This person has been so blinded by his sin, he is not even able to think about it properly. His view of God, his view of himself, his view of the gospel is so twisted, he actually perverts. That's what this word warped means. He perverts these things to support his own divisiveness. He twists God's Word to defend and justify his disobedience. There comes a point in his life where he cannot be reasoned with. Church, we must, un- we must understand this about our sin. You see, sin is not just a series of bad choices that we make. Sin is like a cancer. It eats away at our souls. The more we give in, the greater hold it takes on our hearts so that we are not even able to think clearly about it. I know many times I've thought, I thought this about others, I've thought this about myself. If I can just present this argument in a way that they can understand, if I can just show this person or get myself to see that this sin is really disobedience and it's really disobeying God's Word, then surely they will agree and repent. And we're called to do that. We really are. We're called to, as clearly as possible, confront ourselves and others who are in sin. But it's also possible that the sin has taken such a prominent place in a person's heart that they literally cannot see it for what it is. John Owen, the Puritan who wrote on this subject in The Mortification of Sin, writes this. This is a great explanation of what we see in this passage. In this, we see the deceitfulness of sin. It gradually prevails to harden man's heart to his ruin. Sin's expression is modest at the beginning. It's small. You don't really think about it that much. But once it has gained a foothold, it continues to take further ground and presses on to greater heights. This advance of sin keeps the soul from seeing that it is drifting from God. The soul becomes indifferent to the seed of sin as it continues to grow. This growth has no boundaries 
but utter denial of God and opposition to Him. Sin precedes higher by degrees. It hardens the heart as it advances. This enables the deceitfulness of sin to drive the soul deeper and deeper into it. Church, I hope this causes us not to look at other people. I hope this causes us to look at ourselves. We are all infected with this cancer. We know it, don't we? Don't you feel this day after day? Don't the words of Romans 7 resonate with you like they do with me? When Paul says, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. When I read those words, when I read the words of Owen, or mortification of sin, I see myself. I know this battle. I feel that pull in my heart on a daily basis. Sin is not just an outward behavioral choice. It's a disease that must be treated regularly with the good news of the gospel of the grace of God. Otherwise, our entire natures will be corrupt. We will become warped and sinful and self-condemned. But how is the church to deal with these divisive people? These are people that are actively seeking to divide God's church. Paul gives us a general way of dealing with them. It seems that these were people that were used to be thought to be genuine believers. They were members of the church. They became divisive over some kind of foolish controversy. Paul gives instruction how to deal with them. They are to be warned once. If they persist in their divisive behavior, they are to be warned a second time. And if they again continue in their divisive behavior, the church should have nothing else to do with them. This seems to be the same action as excommunication. Now, let's talk specifics here. This is different, okay? This is different from what Jesus taught in Matthew 18, right? In Matthew 18, we see a four-step process. If we see another in sin, first, we are to go to that person and confront them. Second, if they persist in sin, we are to take two or three witnesses and confront them. Third, if they persist in sin, we are to make it known to the church. And fourth, if they persist in sin, we are to excommunicate. Four steps. But here, in Titus, this process is sped up. Now, why? Jonathan Lehman He's one of the leaders from Nine Marks, Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He's written a lot on ecclesiology, church discipline. He, he writes this about Titus 3. This, is, this helped me wrap my mind around what's going on. 
he writes this, sometimes the process of discipline needs to speed up, which might mean skipping one or two of the steps described by Jesus in Matthew 18. Two clear biblical warrants for speeding up the processes of discipline are, one, division in the church, and two, public scandal that will misrepresent Christ in the community beyond the church. Okay, so here's, here's his reasoning. Regarding the first category, which is what we see in Titus, Paul says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. It's not entirely clear what kind of process Paul has in mind here, but his words do suggest that the church should respond quickly and decisively to division makers for the sake of the body. So there is a speeding up of the process when people are actively seeking to divide the church. An even faster process, Lehman writes, is presented in 1 Corinthians 5, in which Paul calls upon the church to immediately remove an individual known to be engaged in a publicly scandalous sin. That is, a sin of which even the non-Christian community disapproves. If you remember 1 Corinthians 5, there was a man sleeping with his stepmother. Even the unbelieving world would cringe at such immorality. Paul says, remove him. So, let's quickly go over these different processes of church discipline. First, the quickest process we just, we just talked about, 1 Corinthians 5. person's confirmed to be an open or unrepentant sin. He actually boasting about it and trying to justify it. It's so egregious that even unbelievers would think so. That person should be expelled immediately. It's hopefully very rare in the life of the church. Second, the next quickest process is found in our text today, Titus 3. Those who are actively seeking to divide the church, they should be given two warnings. If they persist in sin, after two warnings, they are to be excommunicated. Again, hopefully very rare in the life of of a church. And third, we have Matthew 18, which will apply to the majority of church discipline cases. There we have the normal four-step process I mentioned earlier. Now, even though these processes seem very clear here and make sense, actually applying them to a situation is oftentimes not entirely clear. There are often many layers of sin that are uncovered in the process. It's difficult to always know how to respond with patience while at the same time calling people to repentance. This is why we need God's Word to guide us and the Holy Spirit to illumine our eyes. We must always keep the message of the gospel central. It's it's when we begin to exalt our own agendas, our own idols, that things become unnecessarily divisive. Now, church, these things are not fun to think about, and I don't look forward to preaching on them, but they are necessary for us to understand because we are definitely not immune to controversy. We must always keep the goal of church discipline in mind. It's not strictly punitive. In our passage today, it's to protect the unity of the church. Gospel unity must take priority 
in situations where someone is being intentionally divisive. So protect the unity of the church. So we've seen insist on consistency. Avoid foolish controversies and protect the unity of the church. Now, let's take some time at the end. What does this mean for our own lives? Yes, these instructions are primarily for Titus and those who are called to lead the church. However, everyone in the body of Christ has a responsibility here as well. First, we have to ask ourselves, what is really central in our lives? Ask yourself that. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ simply an abstract belief that we hold to? Do we simply give it a head nod of agreement without actually seeking to live it out? Where are you being inconsistent in your walk with the Lord? Second, are there foolish controversies that are taking root in your thinking or interactions with others? Maybe you feel like you've been sinned against by someone. Take initiative and go to that person and seek reconciliation. Maybe you have a fundamental disagreement with someone about a point of doctrine or a life choice they've made. Is this something that can simply be overlooked for the sake of unity and love? If so, ask the Lord to help you do that. Or maybe it's something more serious. If that's the case, then ask the Lord to first give you humility and love for this person. Then ask the Lord for clarity and wisdom about this issue by trying to understand the other person's point of view. Then, as Jesus teaches, seek to remove the log in your own eye before trying to remove the speck in someone else's. Then, after you've done all that, you might be ready to work through that controversy with that person. And third, let's be people who take the unity of the church seriously. Church, it grieves the Lord to see His bride divided. There are times when division is necessary and even healthy. There are even secondary doctrines that we as a church, I'm sorry, there are core doctrines of the Christian faith, however, that we cannot compromise on. There are even secondary doctrines that we must keep in order if we are to function properly. But beyond that, there's a whole host of tertiary issues and life decisions and opinions that we are free to discuss, but we are not free to divide over them. Division over foolish controversies or people placing their own opinions or idols above the purposes of Christ preaches a false gospel to the world. Unnecessary division in the church is the work of Satan. It drives God's people away from one another. It creates anger and resentment and bitterness. Let's seek for love and grace and understanding and humility. My hope today, as I said before, is that we would be convinced that God's desire for His church is gospel-centered unity displayed by good works. Let's pray. Lord, we need you for this. We need you for all of life. But Lord, we need you to show us, Father, how to live consistently with 
the message that we say that we believe. It is so easy to point out in other people inconsistently, inconsistencies. We are so blind to it ourselves. Father, break those things down. Tear down our blindness, our pride. Help us, Father, to be people for whom the gospel is more than just a set of beliefs that we mentally assent to, but that we would actively seek to carefully live out the gospel in good works. May we avoid foolish controversy. And may we protect and maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in this church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.